Luke this morning. We're turning to the book of Ruth, and I'm sure some of you thought, wait a second, I thought you were going to say, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Well, that is certainly our, our normal pattern on Sunday mornings. A number of weeks ago, in the month of April, we introduced a new series on Sunday evening uh, going through the book of Ruth. And our goal here at Grace is that in each one of our services, we provide a different portion of God's Word. And so on Sunday mornings, we are typically in a gospel, the gospel of Matthew. In Sunday evening, we are in another portion of Scripture, sometimes in the New Testament, sometimes in the Old. We have studied the book of Jonah. We have studied the book of uh, Jude. We now find ourselves in the book of Ruth. But the way the schedule has gone, we've gotten away from the book of Ruth, and I want to maximize our next couple of Sunday morning, Sunday evening gatherings together to go through this precious book. It is absolutely a powerhouse of God's truth and His grace. And so we return again to the book of Ruth, and our title of the message this morning is Portraits of Grace in Ruth, and we're going to be in Ruth chapter 1. Church family, if you've been in the previous two messages, I will ask twofold, number one, that you be patient, but also please know that I'll be covering much material that I have not covered uh, up until this point, but we will still be in Ruth chapter 1 reviewing where we see the gospel, portraits of the gospel, and the reality is in the book of Ruth you can literally squeeze the text and it will drip the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we find here in just chapter 1 alone is different portraits that point us to the gospel. And we'll continue to see that, not only in chapter 1, but we'll continue to see that as we go on further. So join me in, in Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, and we'll read down through verse 22. Ruth chapter 1, verse 18, and we'll read down through verse 22. And when she saw that she was determined, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said to one another, is, is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty, Yahweh, has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. So why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of God. Charles Dickens in 1859, in his very pivotal and famous book entitled A Tale of Two Cities, penned these words that no doubt will ring a bell in your memory. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Now, most people understand that tweetable phrase. They've heard it. They've said it. They've quoted it. Maybe they didn't realize. Maybe you didn't realize where it came from. But it comes from Dickens's novel, A Tale of Two Cities. But this is what most people don't know. He, he continues on to say this. He says, it was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. 
It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. Is that confusing? Well, it is. In in a short economy of words, Dickens sets the stage for the epic novel that, that is to come. But what we find here in Scripture at the end of the book of Judges and beginning here in the book of Ruth is a very similar situation. In all of the canon of Scripture, in the unfolding drama of redemption, what we see in the book of Judges and then in the book of Ruth is one of the darkest times in not only just Jewish history, but one of the darkest times in history. I'm afraid too often we think in terms of, well, there's the Bible's story, and then you've got secular history. But friends, I want to just tell you, there's only one story, and that's Jesus' story. That's his story. There's only one plan that's actually unfolding, and that is the unfolding drama of the cross. There's only one God who reigns, and that is our God who reigns. We see in chapter 1, verse 1, where the Bible says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. We discover here in these opening verses that the setting is set for the book of Ruth that is actually a part of the book of Judges. Now, we have not studied the book of Judges. I have no doubt. I know that you guys have read through the book of Judges. You're familiar with your Bible. And to read through the book of Judges, whether you study through it or you're reading through it in your personal Bible reading plan or your personal time with the Lord, let's all admit that while there are passages in Judges that are interesting, to read it, particularly in one sitting or to read it over the course of two or three days, leaves you sick to your stomach. It is vile. It also points, no doubt, to the work of God and what God is doing as he works through different men and women. Uh, He raises up for his people. But the reality is, is that the spiritual climate of God's people is absolutely devastating. In fact, we are left to conclude that possibly Israel is an apostate nation and there is is no hope for them. Then we see the book of Ruth. In fact, again and again in the book of Judges, we see every man did that which was right in his own eyes. When you go back just one page to Judges 21, verse 25, the last verse of the book of Judges, it's summarized there for us. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man, everyone, did what was right in his own eyes. What we find as we come to the book of Ruth Chapter 1, verse 1 is, now, it came to pass in those days when the judges ruled. That day when, when everyone was doing that which is right in their own eyes. That day of absolute depravity. Much like a day that we live in today. How, how could you summarize the modern day Babylon that we live in today, church? You can summarize it like this. Every man is doing that which is right in their own eyes. Men today are many gods. They will do whatever their heart tells them to do. From their earliest of ages, childhoods, they are encouraged to to follow their heart, to pursue their passions, their loves. Now, if I'm saying that this morning and you say, wait a second, what's wrong with that? Well, listen, when we compare what the modern call, the siren call of culture is versus the call of Christ, we understand the call to discipleship. The call to discipleship, the call of the gospel 
is to come and die, is to sacrifice self and to find life in Christ, to find life in the Son of God who gave his life for us. In fact, the only time Jesus, as we've mentioned many times, ever mentions anything before the word self, it's, it's not self-love, it's not self-care, it's not self-appreciation, it's not all the things we could put there, it's to deny self. From the words of Christ, the only thing we're told to do regarding ourself is to deny self and to follow Christ, to take up our cross and deny self daily and to rest in him, the one who has called us with an eternal calling, who has prepared us for good works that he has chosen before the foundation of the world for us to fulfill and pursue. Now we discover in these opening verses that a woman named Naomi has a husband who dies. His name is Elilamech. Her husband is Elilamech and her two sons are Milan and, and Kilian. And the Bible tells us in the first five verses, and we've studied previously, we've looked at this in depth, this family is escaping a famine. A famine that we believe, according to our understanding of Scripture, and I will be honest with you, not all commentators agree as to what is going on in the first five verses. Some commentators believe there's nothing wrong with what this family is doing and has done. Some say it is, is a normal thing to look for food in the time of famine. And I'm not going to go through all the scenarios. It is my conviction based upon the study of God's Word and understanding what God has told His people in this context and here in this moment. He has told them, I am bringing you into the promised land. And if you will love me, and if you will serve me, and you will not go after other gods, I will provide for every need you have. God promises his covenant faithfulness to his people. He will be their God. They will be his people. But the warnings are given, and we've looked at them. If not, God will bring judgment upon his people. You say, wait a second, wait a second. I thought God is a God of love. You mean God brings judgment upon his people? Yes, that, that is what we see again and again in the Old Testament. I will give a pastoral warning in this sense. We do need to be careful in seeking the wisdom of God and the light of Scripture and determining what, where, when, and how. The Jews had a constant mindset of if anything negative or if anything wrong happened to the people of God, it was always God's judgment, and that is not a correct assessment. We understand that. You could take the book of Job, for example, and know that that was not a correct assessment. But the point here is that God has already publicly warned his people again and again. One of the things that he will do if they abandoned him is he will bring famine in the land. And that's exactly what has happened. In the book of Judges, you see covenant, not faithfulness, but unfaithful covenant upon the part of the people of God. And God allows within his sovereign will to bring a famine upon his people. Here in the house of bread, Elilamech, whose name is my God is king, leaves and abandons the house of bread that is Bethlehem. The man whose name is my God is king runs from God, runs from the chastening hand of God to that where there is maybe grass that is greener on the other side. Friends, you've heard the, the reason, right, why the grass is greener on the other side. We grow up in a, we not grow up, we are here in a farm culture, an agrarian culture, and you see these cows that are, have their, their, their head through the fence, and they're looking at the grass that is greener on the other side. Well, we're not going to unpack that, but I think you know the reason why that is. Many times it's over a septic tank. 
Elilamech, his wife Naomi, Malon, and Kilion leave. They run. Life gets difficult. They resent the chastening hand of God. And they decide to pack their bags and run to Moab. Notice how there's a progression in this text. Now, this is a little bit of a different type of message. I'm, I'm reviewing, and in just a moment, we're going to look at some portraits of the gospel. So thank you for your patience, and I want you to track with me here. In verse 1, notice the text tells us that they traveled, they sojourned. In verse 2, they went, and then in verse 2, they then remained. Here's the idea. There's a progression where their original intent was just simply to go and visit. But then they go and they get comfortable, and then they go and stay in this foreign land, this land of the Moabites, which is a, a chosen enemy of God's people. The Moabites, we'll, we'll look at their history in just a moment, but are a vowed enemy of the people of God. Here, a temporary plan becomes a permanent plan. We see the two sons, Malon and Kilian, they marry two Moabite women named Ruth and Orpah. And in chapter 4, it tells us that Ruth married Malon and Orpah married Kilion. No sooner do these men get married than death enters this home. First, according to our text here in chapter 1, we see that Elilamech passes away. Verse 3, then Elilamech, Naomi's husband, died, and then she was left with her two sons. Friends, we know that when death happens, it is absolutely catastrophic and devastating. Many of our worlds have been shaken as you have walked with a longtime spouse for decades, and then suddenly, God takes them. Last Sunday evening, we were sitting after the assisted living ministry. A group of us went out to eat, just a fellowship, and one of our widows was there, and she was telling the story that I had never heard, and she was telling us how God took her the last day in the life of her husband. And we were tracking with her on every word as she was telling us these last moments. And all of a sudden, he was gone. That is, a, that is a life, that's a moment that we would say is life-changing. But here in our text, we see that God doesn't just take the father, the patriarch. Secondly, the text tells us that suddenly, the two sons are taken in death as well. One death turns into three. We don't know any of the details. We don't know whether Elilamech, who was guesstimated to be in his 50s, passed away, say, of a heart attack, and then all of a sudden the two sons were, uh, were, were working in the field and were struck by lightning, or whether they were killed by invaders, or whether they were in an accident of some sort on horses. We just don't know. But what we do know is that they both die very close together. It's a reminder to all of us that life can seem to be going so well and how fast things can change. Oftentimes we are prideful. We are confident. We are boastful in our decisions. Unfortunately, at times, we are running from God, and we think that God has not seen or that God has not heard. And because he does not judge us, in a sense, swiftly or he does not allow things to happen, we often can think things are fine. Now, I'm, what I'm not saying here is that God directly, we know that life and death is in the power of the Lord. We understand that. We'll see in a passage in a few moments in 1 Samuel chapter 2 where Hannah declares that it is the Lord who kills, it is the Lord who makes alive. Our, our aim here is not to say that the Lord intentionally did this because of the decisions that they made, but it's just the reality that it happened. It happened. 
Death comes quickly and suddenly and swiftly. And all of a sudden, three women find themselves alone in this world and they feel the brokenness and the harshness of this world. And all of a sudden, whereas Naomi was confident in their decision to run, all of a sudden she is very, very alone. She is grieving. Here with her two daughter-in-laws, they are a broken group of ladies who are wondering what comes next. What is left for us in this life? In fact, a widow in ancient times, to be without a family, a, a clan, a people, at best was a life of poverty, completely dependent on someone else giving you scraps or having mercy upon you. And at worst, it was a death sentence. No one wanted you. No one wanted to help you. Now, that was not the case among God's people. It was the case here in Moab. Among the pagan nations, the pagans had no system of care. As we saw read in the scripture reading earlier, where God instructs his people, this you shall do, this you shall not do. And one thing scripture makes very clear is God has a concern for the least of these. James 1 says, pure and undefiled religion. You say you have faith? Pure and undefiled faith is this. Those who care for the widow and the orphan, because they can do nothing for you. They cannot repay. But God sees. God is their husband. God is their father. And so God instructs and gives instructions to his people about the care of the orphan and the widow. Here we have three. Here we have three suddenly upon the scene. In Moab, there is no system of care or provision for the Moabite, for the widow in the Moabite society. In fact, if you think about their gods, Baal was their god and Chemosh was their god. These are impersonal gods who have a, a bloodlust for human sacrifices that are offered to them. Baal and Chemosh have no concern for the orphan or for the widow. They consume them. What are human gods, by the way, friends, that we erect in our own making? Human gods, little g, gods that reflect the very ones who make them. In fact, Psalm 50 verse 21 says this, God speaking to Israel says, these things you have done and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Even God's people have a tendency to wander away, as Isaac Watts says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. God says to Israel, you think, you thought I was like you. You craft an image in your mind and in your worship where I'm just like you. I'm this casual God in the sense of I'm not holy, holy, holy as we saw last Sunday. I'm whoever you want me to be. We've seen what strange fire and strange fire and the sacrifices have done to men in the past. Here, God warns his people. Here we have the full canon of Scripture. We learn of God's ways in the past. We understand what the full unfolding drama of redemption is. And what we see in this passage is that God does have concern for the widow. God does have a care for the widow. And through the new covenant, what we see in this passage is that God's care in the time when the judges ruled, it's almost as if in the book of Judges, you've got this depravity after depravity after depravity. Then the Holy Spirit leads us and zooms us in. What we believe, and I'm more convinced than ever, is maybe in the times of Gideon or just after Gideon, the judge. 
So if you're reading in the book of Judges, you might want to write that down and just kind of work through thinking about this might be the time, and we'll, we'll explore why that is, where Boaz is called a valiant warrior. The word that is used there is a warrior. And the same word that's used to describe Gideon and others. And it's believed that Boaz was a retired soldier, possibly who served in, in Gideon's arsenal. What we see here is that God has concern for the least of these. And all of these things point us to the gospel. All of these things point us spiritually to our need of salvation and grace. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 39, he said to the Pharisees, he says, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But here's what you need to remember. These, the scriptures, these are they which testify of me. Christ, the bread of life, the way the truth, the life. When you say, as Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, we are of Abraham's seed, who do you think preached the gospel to Abraham? The scriptures testify of me. Luke 24, 27, the, the, the disciples, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus begins to shepherd them. And he, beginning at Moses, Luke 24, 27, and all the prophets... He began to teach to them, literally exposit the word that in all the scriptures, the things that were concerning himself. So we want to ask this question as when we now move into portraits of the gospel here in Ruth 1. What does this text show us about the good news of Christ? What does this text show us about the gospel? What is it that we see? First of all, I want you to just write down, if you're taking notes, Ruth the Moabitess. Just sit with the heading, number one, Ruth the Moabitess. We'll review just for a second. What does it mean when we say there's a woman, as Elilemech and Naomi and Milan and Kilion all come into Moab, and all of a sudden, Milan one day sees Ruth and falls in love with her. We, we don't know the background story. We just know that he chose her and married her. We see that Orpha was married to Kilion. Here the text introduces us to a woman named Ruth, seemingly insignificant, but the Holy Spirit records for us multiple times. Notice there in the text, um, let's see here, uh, there in verse 22, and Naomi returned and Ruth with the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her. The Holy Spirit wants us to not forget that, that Ruth is not of the chosen people of Israel. She's not of the covenant people of God. Ruth is an outsider. Ruth is a stranger. Ruth, the Moabitess. Moab was a son of Lot, if you remember, by incest, where Lot, following the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, his two daughters, if you remember the story, were afraid that they would have no children. And so they took matters into their own hands. To be without children in this time was to be uh, just to be believed to be cursed, viewed rightly or wrongly. These girls take means into their own hands. They get their father drunk, have relations with their father, and Moab is one of the children that is produced. So Moab, of course, as he's the, steps, the son of Lot, is related to Abraham. The Moabites become an arch enemy of the people of God. Moab and his descendants departed from the Lord. They were known for their idolatry and their immorality, particularly the gods to the gods Chemosh and Baal. And regularly they would offer up their firstborn children as human sacrifices to them. And because of this, God's wrath and judgment was upon these people. 
When God raised up Joshua to lead his people into the promised land, God gave strict instructions that the land would purge out, vomit out this wickedness. Many of these people groups, they knew the God of Scripture. We'll see in just a moment. Rahab had heard. The people of Jericho knew of the God who saved his people, that he was holy. They had heard of his renown. And many just continued on in their idolatry and their sin, their bestiality, their rampant diseases that were spreading among them. You've got to remember, God's promise was to his people. I will protect you. I will guide you. I will feed you. And part of what that was was to clear the land of its iniquity and to prepare a place for the chosen people of Israel. There was no hope. Here's our key this morning to understand this. Under the law of God, there was no hope for the Moabites. Under the law of God, God's wrath and his judgment rested upon the Moabites because of their sin and because of their rejection of him. There was no hope for this people. They had no future. They had no covenant promises from Jehovah. Their lot was the same as the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amalekites, and all the otherites. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1, we see, if you'll turn there with me just briefly, Deuteronomy chapter 7, God lays down his law to his people. And he gives orders to them regarding their relationship to the nations surrounding them who have given themselves over to idolatry. And God knows that his people, if they intermarry with these people, he knows that if his people do business with these people, it will have an effect upon them. Verse 1 there, Deuteronomy 7 When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations, notice here, greater and mightier than you, you the least of these, uh, Israel. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son or take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. In chapter 23, verse 3, an Ammonite or a Moabite, notice here the judgment of the law upon these people. We have to establish this. This is important. An Ammonite or a Moabite, God says to his people, shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Here's the point we want to establish, is that God has announced to his people a verdict This is why we know as we put scripture to scripture that it could not be God's will for his people to go run to the enemy, the Moabites, to leave the house of bread, to find bread among the Moabites or the Ammonites. What we find here, number one, Ruth the Moabitess is this. Ruth was condemned under the law of God. Under God's law, there was no hope for her. Under God's law, there was a curse against her. Ruth's citizenship, her birth, her nature, all was under the curse of the law. Ruth was under the wrath of God. And here we see how she is a type of us, church. 
Here we see Ruth is a Gentile. She is not a part of the covenant people of God by nationality or, or by blood. She's an outsider. Or maybe the theme this morning will be she is a stranger. And church, we were too. As we look here at Ruth, what we see is, is we're looking into the portrait of God's grace. You know how you, you look into the, a portrait and you see that oftentimes a portrait, some portraits are covered with glass. They want to be protected. As we look close enough, what we find is our reflection in the portrait. In fact, turn with me over to Romans chapter 3 very quickly. And I, and I promise you, these passages are building and pointing us to what we see as the gospel. So take the time to turn there with me. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. As we see this title, Ruth, the Moabitess. Friend, I want you to put your name there. Legrand, the sinner. Insert your name there. And consider the fact that in the same way, under the law, by citizenship, by birth, by nature, we are born under the law, which means the curse of God. In Romans chapter 3, Paul makes this case beginning in verse 9. This is what he says. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks. Notice here, Jew and Gentile. They are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. Their tongues, with their tongues, they practice deceit. Who's he talking about here? He's talking about me. He's talking about you, friend. In our natural state, this is us. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. Notice here. Here's a summary of those who are not in the gospel. Here's a summary of those who are outside of Christ. There is no fear of God in their eyes. And brother, you know who you are in Sunday school this morning? That's a part of our conversation. We were talking about fruit and professions and all that. And brother, you know who you are in class who was there this morning. This verse, this phrase didn't come to mind, but that's it. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, Paul says, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Friends, what Paul is describing right here in Romans 3 is the condemnation that we are all born in and under. This is the condemnation of the law. This is the bad news. Before you can receive the good news of the gospel, you have to understand the bad news. See, we want to skip past the bad news because we don't want to be offensive. And yet we ourselves, who've been saved by grace, know that we've experienced this. Before we could receive the grace of the gospel, we had to see why we even needed the gospel. You can't give a man medicine unless he thinks he needs it. We try to go to people 
and give them a remedy that they don't believe they need? How do we help the blind see that they need the gospel? We must preach the law to them. The law is our schoolmaster that shows us Christ. This is what Paul is saying. This is the argument that he is making. And the law points us to despair because all fall short of the glory of God. This is the condemnation of the law. In a society today, in a modern Babylon today, in Kingston, Tennessee today, in Roan County, in Knox County, in East Tennessee, what we need to hear is this right here. That in a society that tells me to follow my heart, to do what I want to do, with all the music on my playlist, just feed self-love and glory and delights and all that I am, what I need to hear and what you need to hear is the judgment of the law. And I said that intentionally. In a society that hates judgment, that says, don't ever tell me I'm wrong, don't ever cross-grain me, the law does. The law says you are lost and on your way to hell. Here's what we mean by the law. Just take the summary of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not murder. Listen, we're just taking a few of them. And what we understand, according to the clear teaching of Scripture, is that not only not to commit the act, but to think the act is to break the law. James says to violate the law of God in one point is to violate all of it. Who among us can say that we have always loved the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Who can say that? Who among us can say that I've always loved my neighbor, my children, my, my wife, my physical neighbor as myself? Who among us can say I've never told a lie? Here's the point that Paul knows. We know the answer to this. Paul says our, our mouths are stopped. Before the law. The law is a schoolmaster. The law is a preacher. The law is a mirror. The law, by the way, if you're hearing me, some of you are thinking, well, I don't hear this much. Is he preaching the, the sound word of God? And here's one thing you may be thinking. The law condemns? What do you, what? No, listen. The law reveals what's already there. The law shows me what's in my heart. And that's why it condemns. It's not like I'm coming in a state of neutrality and that, that's what our world teaches. You're good. These are good people. This is, we, these are good kids. This is a good community. This is a, a good family. Listen, Jesus said to the rich young Lord, why do you call me good? There is none good, no, not one. And it's not because Jesus had sinned. It's because the rich young ruler didn't know who he was. The rich young ruler thought he was just a good teacher. And what Jesus wanted to know is there is none good, no, not one among earthly men. The law condemns, and what we mean by that, it reveals what is already there. The law is the standard of perfection. The law is the revealer of God's truth. Notice this summary that we just saw here in Romans 3. Paul says this, no one is righteous, verse 10. No one. No, no caveats. This is not like this people group is, is righteous, but this one is not. No, Paul says, no one is righteous. No nation is above another nation. There is no nation that is more godly than another, another nation naturally. No one is righteous. No one understands, verse 11, if God does not come in, Ezekiel 37, and break our hearts of stone and give a heart of flesh, there is no one who understands, verse 11. By the way, if you take offense to that, Paul says no one seeks. If you seek God, if you know him, if you love him, it's because he first sought you. 
1 John. We love because he first loved us. Paul says, verse 12, we're all just good people here, right? Paul says, no, no one does good. No one. No one speaks for God, verses 13 and 14. No one naturally just walks with God, verse 15. Well, I thought Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God because God walked with him. God called him to himself. No one has lasting peace, verses 16 and 17. That's what we were talking about. We said the Lord is my shepherd through the gospel. I, I have everything met and needed in Christ. Verse 18, no one fears God. Verses 19 through 24 makes clear everyone needs a Savior. And so when we see here in Ruth chapter 1, Ruth, the Holy Spirit wants us to know, Ruth the Moabitess, what he wants us to know is the gospel is needed by all. What we see here is Ruth is a type of the church. Those of us who are believers and Gentiles, we like Ruth stood under the condemnation of God. As we read the law of God and look into it and as we examine our lives, what is it that we find? What we find is that we by nature are children of wrath. And friends, if you do not look into the gospel and if you do not look into the law and find that you are once a child of wrath, now redeemed by his grace, then friend, look to Jesus and be saved. Jesus would say to you, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What we find when we look into this law is that we have broken that law, as I've been describing this morning. And as far as our relationship to the law is concerned, we can have no relationship with God unless we come to him by his son. Romans 3.23 declares that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have no hope. We stand condemned in our natural state. The law demands perfection that I cannot do, that I cannot perform, and that you cannot perform. And that is why we must repent. Not pursue self-love. That is why we must repent. And friends, you say, he, will he accept me? Yes, he will accept you. If you come to Christ with anything other than your repentance, you unchrist him. You make him something else. You must come to him as you are, and he will save you as you are. But do not come with your self-righteousness. Do not come with your good works. Do not come to him with your excuses. Simply come to him with simple faith. Rest in him. Believe in him. Follow after him. And worship him. As we look into Ruth, that's what we find. We see a beautiful portrait that is unexplainable apart from the sovereign, matchless grace of God. What the law was not able to do, God's grace was able to do. Simply look at verse 1. Now it came to pass that there was a famine in the land. There, there are no happenstances with God. Don't ask me to explain it. But God is working all things after the counsel of his own will. And God before ordained to go to Moab and to bring this woman and to bring her among his covenant people and not only to use her as a type, but in actuality as a part of the lineage of the Messiah who would come. She who was an idol worshiper, a pagan, self-righteous, in need of salvation, God in his sovereign grace you say, why? That's the question. Why does God save any of us, friends? But God chose to take her and to graft her into the life of his people. 
to make her a part of his story. And he brings everything to pass. And you say, well, wait a second. That, that opens up a whole other can of worms. Let me give you just two or three verses that I think will help you. God in his providence brings all things to pass for his glory, for his people's good without sin. Joseph says to his brothers, when you sold me into slavery, Genesis chapter 50, what you meant for evil, they are fully responsible for their volitional sins. And Joseph says to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. The Bible is content that there is to let there be tension in the text of Scripture. So I'm not going to go beyond the, the bounds of Scripture. I'm content with that. Proverbs 37, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Proverbs 16, verse 9, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 19, 21, there are many plans in the, man, the heart of man, but nevertheless, notice here, the Lord's counsel, it shall stand. I think we're going to be blown away. Not think. That's, a, that's the dumbest statement I've said all day. We will be blown away when we see if God allows us to, the full tapestry of not only grace, but what, <laughs> excuse me, church, what it took to bring us into the family of God. I think we're going to be blown away when we see what God did to seek us as his lost sheep. What we see here in Ruth is that the worst of times, God is at work. And at the best of times, he is at work. Let's just put it like this. God is always at work. By the way, this isn't the first time he ever did this. In fact, you don't have to turn there, but this is God's pattern. If time allowed this morning, I'd love to do a survey of Scripture that just shows, yes, God has a chosen people that begin with a pagan named Abraham. God gives guidance and callings and directions to him. And then it glorifies his great name to save all along the pilgrim way, to add to his church, to add to his people, and eventually one day his church for his great name. It delights God to do this. In fact, in Joshua chapter 2, we see a woman named Rahab. That God began to work in her heart by his spirit to convict her of her sin. Now, when you go to Joshua chapter 2, the Holy Spirit just simply tells us the facts of the story. But you can't read them without knowing God's at work here. She began to hear of Jehovah who provided for his people. She began to hear of the God who saves. She began to hear of the God who loves and cares for the least of these, the orphan, the widow, who delivers from the hand of Pharaoh. She began to long for this salvation. Rahab, excuse me here, the harlot. In our moralism, in our self-righteousness, we forget what we've been saved from. But God wants us to know that he delights to save, and don't miss this, all our sinners. Remember? We, we, we tend to look at, the Holy Spirit records Rahab the harlot so that we can understand, yes, even the Rahabs can be saved. But according to Romans 3, we're all harlots. We're all spiritual adulterers according to James chapter 1. It's a miracle of God's mercy that he can save any of us. Rahab's no worse a sinner than the person who's ever, never uh, visited the harlot's house. 
God was already working in her heart. Joshua sent two men who were sovereignly led of God, and they were led to go directly to Rahab's house. How do you explain that? Apart from either emergency or necessity, it's the closest place to turn into. I'll just tell you this, it was no accident. God wanted these men to go here to interact with them. And in Joshua chapter 2, verse 8, Now before they lay down, Rahab came to the, them on the roof as they were hidden. She said to the men, this is what she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all of the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, notice here, this is a confessional statement. This is the same type of statement Ruth will make at the end of Ruth 1. He is God in heaven, above and on earth beneath. That's a confessional statement. It's one thing to say, we've heard about what he has done. But now it moves from what we've heard to what I believe, verse 11 of chapter 2. He is the God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now because of that, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will show kindness to my father's house. And that you will give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have. And deliver our lives from death. Friends, Rahab was like Ruth. Ruth, the Moabitess. Rahab, the harlot. And God delights to save what we think in the minds of our natural thinking are the, the worst of these. Rahab was cursed under the law. And yet... Rahab found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Let me just remind you, God's mercy is what we deserve, and yet he withholds it. We deserve wrath. God withholds wrath and displays and pours out mercy instead. God's grace is his giving to us what is not due. And God was delighted to pour out his mercy and his grace on Rahab. Now, this is just one cross-reference. God delights to save. Friends, if you're here this morning and you don't know him, listen to me and listen to me clear. If you're thinking, can God save me? My answer is yes, and you knew I'd say that. But I know what you're thinking as well. In your heart, you're thinking, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. And friend, I want you to know, I don't have to know. And I don't ever have to know. And I want you to know, he already knows. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In his omniscience, he knows the worst about us. And yet he died for us. So why, why are you not coming to him again? Come to him with all that your sin is. Come to him and confess to him. Pour out your heart before him. And I want you to know he will save you. He will make you clean. He will wash you in the blood of his son. I can give you that promise this morning. Jesus says, no man that comes to me will I turn away. The problem is, you hear me preaching about God's sovereignty, and some of you don't like that. You feel that tension. I just want you to know, the problem is that men won't go to God. The problem is, is that men hear the gospel call, and they reject it. The problem is that men in their depravity hear him say, come to me, and let us reason together. And they think, I'll think about it. I'll go do what I want to do. I'm bored. I'm checked out. Friends, that's the problem. 
spiritual death. So what we find is that Romans chapter 10, 17 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And friends, it's by God's grace that the message of salvation to those of us who are in Christ has been brought to us. We heard the message of the gospel. In fact, turn with me, if you don't mind, very quickly, Romans chapter 8, verse 3. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. Bear with me, we're, we're going to land this plane. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, nails home this fact where Paul brings this all together when he says, under the law, there is a curse. The law reveals, the law instructs. It is literally a tutor that points us to why we are under the wrath of God. Imagine a big whiteboard and a teacher with a stick, and it's just like click, 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 click. And it's not a bad thing. It's a factual thing. We think in emotional terms. I don't like that, or I, I don't feel like I like it. That's not the point. That is, it is life-giving to find out the truth of our, our spiritual reality. None are righteous. None seek after God. All fall short of the glory of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 3, Paul says this. I actually, begin there with me in, in verse 1. I need to turn there myself. Excuse me. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says this. There is therefore now... No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the daily reality to those who are in grace, to those who are in Christ. There is therefore no more condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. We've turned from our sins. We've repented of our sins. We've turned to Jesus and looked to Jesus. We've looked to him and lived. His Spirit has regenerated us. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. To Ruth, the law revealed her state. To Ruth, the law was weak in this sense. It could not save, but it did reveal. And what the law could not do, God did. Notice there in the middle of verse 3, God did by sending his own son. In the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Friends, this is the gospel that God sent his Son. For God, John 3, 16, for so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. So therefore, through Christ, we see the gospel here in Ruth's conversion, her turning to Jehovah, the God of Israel. Christ answered the demands of the law, met the requirements of the law, was made a curse under the law, and grace does what the law cannot, could not do. And the Holy Spirit of God brought Ruth out of Moab. And friends, he brought me and you, those of us who are the church the called out ones of Christ, he, he brought us out of a spiritual Moab so that we might be the sons and daughters of God. That's what we sang this morning, how deep the Father's love, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. As we were singing the gospel this morning, you need to understand that until you see the cross as something done by you, you cannot receive it 
as something done for you. As we say, you need to see that it was my sin that held him there. That's what we need to repent of. Not grow in love for, not continue to coddle secretly, not continue to brag about boldly, not, not continue to blaspheme the name of God and grow confident in our depression. No, listen, it was my sin that nailed, that held him there. It's why we can go on to sing, Here is love, vast as the oceans, countless as the stars above, are the souls like ours, friends, that he has ransomed, precious daughters, treasured sons. We are called to feast forever on a love beyond our time. Glorious Father, Son, and Spirit, now with man, are, are intertwined. Secondly, and I'm going to move quickly, I promise. Number one, Ruth the Moabite. Secondly, we see a hint of the gospel in Ruth's name, which means satisfied. Literally, you could be rendered in the full context of her story. Ruth, you could say, <clears throat> if Ruth was to pen an autobiography, it would be Ruth the satisfied stranger. Ruth the satisfied stranger. In fact, God called her out of darkness. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, and we'll close on this portion of the gospel as we rehearse what God has done for us. We see a portrait of the gospel even in just her name, Ruth, the satisfied stranger. She wasn't satisfied until God allowed a family running from him to enter into her life. God allowed death. Why would God allow death? I thought God loves me. I thought God only gives me what's best for me. Friends, don't ask me to try to explain why God does what he does. But what we see here, what God does allow us to do in some people's stories is to see the why. And what we see in the why is that God has his own purposes, but his ultimate aim was to bring Ruth among the covenant people of God. Notice Ephesians 2.1. Paul reminds the church at Ephesus, this is us. Now, hear, don't hear what I'm not saying. I can get, I can completely understand that my preaching could be boring. I can completely get that and understand that. I get tired of hearing myself. But one thing that the church never gets tired of is the gospel. Those who are truly saved and regenerated by grace never tire of the gospel. And friend, if you are, I would lovingly exhort you to examine your heart to see whether you truly know what it is you say you believe. And Paul does that. He, he, he shepherds our heart to the heart of the gospel. Ephesians 2.1, he says, And you, church, he made alive like Ruth, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. There was a, a natural way to your life. You were born this way. You're right. The song title has it right. I was born this way. No doubt. We're all born in trespasses and depravity and sin. We walk, Paul says, according to the natural course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. 
among whom we also once conducted ourselves. In other words, we as the church never forget who we once were. That's why pride is the antithesis of the gospel. It makes no sense how a Christian can ever be prideful. We once, Paul says, we all once conducted ourselves in, verse 3 there, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the mind and of the flesh, and were by nature children of wrath under the law just as others. But God. Now, many of you may write a biography one day. You, you may do that. I don't know. Others may have a biography written about you. But I'll tell you this. There is one common denominator in all of our biographies of those who are the bride of Christ. And it's this, verse 4. But God. We don't want to hear your story. I don't, I don't want to hear about how you met Jesus. And I mean this in the sense of bragging. If we're going to brag, let's boast in Jesus. Paul says, boasting in the cross and cross alone. What I'm talking about is, is the cross humbles. The cross absolutely shuts our mouth. There is only one who gets the glory, and that's Jesus. Because we all once conducted ourselves in this way, and we were all by nature children of wrath just as others. And all of us who are saved can say, but God, but God who is rich in mercy. And friends, thank God that you could simply put on your epitaph, Le Grand Lamb, but God. That's it. But God. And that summarizes the story. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, even when we were in Moab, even when we were not seeking him. We're just living life. We were, we were born this way. We're just living among our people, doing our thing. And all of a sudden, God invaded by his word, by his spirit. God began to convict our soul. God began to show us that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Notice what Paul says, verse 5. And he has made us alive together with Christ. This is dead life language. We were dead. He made us alive. Then notice what Paul says. By grace that you have been saved. Now, friends, if you'll just look this way real quick. This is the easy part of the gospel. This is the easy part. To, to remember. This is the glorious part. This is the part that, 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 that's easy to remember. But in our hearts, we move away. And that's why Paul says in verse 11, don't forget. Notice here. Therefore, remember that you too were once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. That at the time that you were without Christ, being Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. We were all, us Gentiles, spiritually, were like Rahab and like Ruth. We were spiritually alienated from the life of God. Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. And we were strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope. Notice here, this is the summary of those outside of Christ. Having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you could say this. Here's my story. But God, I who was once afar off, have been brought near, not by works of righteousness that I have done, but not, not by attending church in my saved, not by giving to the church in my saved, not by feeding the poor in my saved, not by counseling the broken in my saved. Listen, the only way we are saved is by the blood of Christ, the precious blood of Christ. 
Summary statement, verse 14. For he, Christ, himself is our peace, who has made both one. And he, Christ, has broken down the middle wall of separation. This is temple language. The wall that separated the people. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came... And he preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Ruth, the satisfied stranger. As we close this morning, friend, I want to ask you, are you the satisfied stranger? You have to be if you're in the family of God. In fact, all of us can say we were once strangers. And now we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. In our pastoral interviews, we have to do work. It takes work to interview people's professions of faith. Many of you, we've, we've walked with you through it. We've had to, like surgeons with scalpels, kind of walk you through what you believe God's done in your heart. Many of you have grown up in Christian homes and, and contexts. All you know is this. Listen. I struggle to know the date and the time of my salvation, but this I, this I know, and this I declare. I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. By His Spirit, I'm bearing fruit. By His Spirit, I repent of sin. What, what, was the genuine conversion at four? Or was it at ten when I prayed the prayer again? Was it at fifteen? That's where it gets hard as we walk people through, but here's the point. Listen, all of us have the same story. We were brought near by the blood of Christ. If you're listening to me this morning and all of this sounds strange and weird to you, it could be you've not experienced the gospel. And I want to invite you, just as Paul says, to come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Anyone can come. I pray that you will if you have felt his spirit at work in your heart. And that's why we're here. Our goal is not to, to twist your arm. There is a little bit of what I'm doing here preaching is a there's nothing like it in the world. You're making an argument. You're making a case. You're declaring truth. You're saying, thus says the Lord. I urge you. But beyond this, no one's going to come to you and drag you. But maybe the Holy Spirit will. The Holy Spirit will not leave you alone if he's worked in your heart. He's the hound of heaven. And if I can help you or counsel you or point you to Jesus in any way after the service, please come to me or any other, and we will be happy to help you. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for portraits of grace in the Old Testament who just remind us, Lord, of the depths of the gospel. Lord, we exult in it. It humbles us. It reminds us of what you did for us. Father, we are those who were once afar off, who've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Father, I pray that your spirit would do the work that only he can do. I pray that you'll bless your word. We have absolute confidence in this gospel and the power of your word. We ask that you would do that work. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we